would please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. In your bulletin, there is an insert that has the passage we'll be looking at, James 4, 1 through 6, and a little outline for you to follow along, maybe take some notes. I'm always amazed at how God's providence works out in the preaching schedule because Tony going through his regular exposition of the book of Genesis and I'm going through an exposition of the book of James, how they coincide with one another. A couple months ago, uh, Tony was wrapping up teaching about the big test that Abraham had when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God intervened and said that I will provide the lamb. And just a little while longer, in James, we looked at Abraham's faith as evidenced by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and that he was, in fact, justified by this work. And it helped us to understand what is James talking about in justification because that story was fresh in our mind. And now, last week, Pastor Tony preaching through the struggle and conflict between Jacob and Esau and this, this conflict of uh, 20 years plus in the making and how when they came together, they were, they were reconciled. And now we're here in James 4 looking at the cause of fights and quarrels among you. And so, I think it's no mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes people wonder, well, Nathan, why are you preaching on that? You know, that's going on in my life right now. Did you choose that just for me? And I say, no, actually, there's probably three other people that I'm having that same conversation with. And in fact, James 4 comes after James 3, and that's why we're talking about conflict today. So follow along, please, as I read James 4, 1 through 6. This is God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Gracious God, the God of grace, who is full of grace and gives grace abundantly, we come to You now as we are embarking on the study of Your Word, and we pray that that same grace would enable us to see Your Word aright, that You would illumine our minds by the power of Your Holy Spirit to the truth that Your Word contains, the truth that Your Word is, and that You, in fact, do sanctify us, make us holy by the truth. Lord, I pray that You would give us willing spirits to understand and to live out the wonderful and glorious things that You've set before us. Help us to treasure them, to hide them in our hearts, and to live them in our lives. Lord, we are so grateful for this treasure that You have placed in our hands and in our hearts. Lord, we want to not lean on our own understanding, but to, in all our ways, acknowledge You and see that You do, in fact, direct our paths. So, Lord, we've come to pause, to take time out, to listen to You, 
And Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and then the strength to live out what you call us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like you, I've been dealing with conflict all of my life. Right? For me, it's been almost 52 years that I've been dealing with my own conflict, whether it's in my family of origin or I've grown up going to church all of my life. I don't think that there was ever a season in my life that I wasn't either forced to go to church or was going on my own. I've seen conflict in church. I've seen conflict in marriage for 30 years. I've been a part of conflict with parenting for at least 26 years. And I've been in the ministry, either volunteer or as an intern or as a pastor for some 30-plus years. And at Redeemer, I've gotten to see a lot of conflict. And I've got to see the kind of conflict that you have interpersonally with each other, how marriages run into conflict, uh, parenting, workplace, neighbors, people at church, people that you just can't get along with. And there are conflicts that arise, quarrels and fights in every arena. And so, I'm familiar with conflict. And I've been to this passage again and again and again, probably with many of you. In the first service, I was able to do it a little quicker because there were fewer people. But I estimated that of the people that have been here two or more years, I had already talked with them one-on-one or as families, about 50% of them or more, about some of their struggles, some of their conflicts, some of the issues that they're dealing with in trying to get along with other people. It is all over the place. It's something we all struggle with. And so, what I'm glad for is the resource and the truth of God's Word to help us in an area of struggle that is so common to man. And for us to understand and to mind the depths of God's Word so that we can have some real change, some real peace, some real reconciliation in conflict. I I love that Jacob and Esau were able to get back together again. I just wonder what the counseling sessions would have looked like with Jacob on one side, and then we're going to meet separately with Esau for a little bit and work through some of his heart issues. What is he desiring? What is he wanting? What has he made so important that he's really ready to go to blows? And, and Jacob, what, what have you, what's shaped you in your life that you've come to desire and want and go after these things? Because I think James would sit down with these men as I've sat down with many of you and others have sat down with me and say, the problem is not the problem. The heart's the problem. The fight goes on on the surface, externals, but really where the true battle is, is in our hearts. And so if we're going to get to the heart of conflict, I'm convinced, based on the truth of this Scripture, that God's grace is what is going to get us to the heart of our conflicts, because that's what rescues us from our selfish desires and grants us Christ-like humility. And that's the goal. And so as we walk through James 4, 1 to 6, we're going to see the fight behind the fight. We're going to have some instruction and way of looking at battlefield praying and choosing sides and understanding what God's desires are and our desires. But this is all framed up by James in the terms of quarrels, in terms of fights. 
And the words that he uses in verse 1 and in verse, I mean, throughout this whole section, I counted nine different times where you'll see quarrels, fights, war, murder, quarrel, fight, enmity, enemy, and opposes. There's a lot going on here. And James uses kind of a a plethora of words, a, a, a wide range of ways to describe conflict. One of the ways he uses is quarrels. Uh, this word quarrel is used 15 times just in the New Testament, and it's where we get this term uh, polemics. It's, it's doing battle or arguing against. It literally refers to armed conflict or war. Now, let's back up. Maybe James was writing a book to people who were literally at war with one another. And you know, the commentaries that I read on this are, are, are cautioning, yeah, it's probably not the literal context of war that James is trying to write about. What do you do when there's a literal war? But we shouldn't also just minimize it to, oh, he's just talking about, you know, where we rub each other the wrong way and, and where things are conflicted. No, these are like serious, knock-down, drag-out conflicts that happen between church people that happen between people in the same family, husbands and wives. And so, he's using these terms of warfare in, yes, a figurative way, but, but in, a, to, in a way to draw how serious these things are. They're not to be messed with. They're not to be played around with. This word uh, fights that he uses in verse 1, uh, the, the word mache, it, it reminds me of machete, like you're taking a machete to somebody. It's used for physical combat, in, especially in military, and it literally refers to physical combat or a contest using weapons to fight each other. The idea is a serious clash or a conflict. Now, the word that he first uses for quarrels is often used for groups of people, military engagements where nations and groups are at war. But that's not the only way in which we see conflict. We have big-term, big-time conflicts, but we also have kind of one-on-one or small groups. And that's really that second word, fights, covers those uh, smaller groups between individuals or small groups. That happens in churches, that happens in denominations, that happens in countries, that happens in our homes. So, James wants to cover the whole spectrum of fights and where they all come from. I read a short, quippy poem that said, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. Sometimes we just get uh, wore down by the fights and conflicts, the quarrels that come. Well, let's look at the fight behind the fight. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? I think the when of our fights, the who of our fights, the what was said, what was done, those details and circumstances of fighting, uh, those are of relative importance, but what's of absolute necessity is to get below to the heart, to what causes these fights and quarrels. James is going to tell us, is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you quarrel. So, I'm kind of a 
color highlighter guy in my sermon notes. You probably can't see this very well, but the red words are those war words, quarrel words, fight words. There's nine of them. The green words are these desires, these covetous, covet, desire, passions, jealousy. The green words are driving the red words. The, the desires in the heart are what's driving the fights and quarrels. That's what James is saying. Is it not this, your passions, your desires? The passions refer to, um, in a negative way, lusts or desires. Uh, this word hedone is where we get hedonism from. It's, it's just giving in to your fleshly desires. It's used five times in the New Testament of our, of our sensual appetites and our desires. But that second word, desire, at the beginning of verse 2, you desire and don't have, uh, this epithumio word is used uh, differently for good or for bad. There's, there's good things that you can desire. And sometimes we see in Matthew 13, for example, Jesus says, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So, if righteous people, he says, Jesus says, longed for this, that same word desire or long for, it depends what the object is. If the object is the truth or the words of Jesus, then that's a good thing to long for. Similarly, in Luke 22, Jesus is saying to His disciples, He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. This last supper I want to have with you guys, and I really desire that. If it's a desire that Jesus has, it's not sinful, right? So, that's where Paul gives the example in 1 Timothy 3. This is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, if you want to be an elder, you desire a noble task. The desire to serve as a shepherd in the church, that's, that's a noble task. Okay, so desires can be good. And quite often, our desires start out good. They just start to turn kind of malignant. You know, it's like your doctor is keeping an eye on that spot. And that spot looks okay right now, but uh, we want to check that out a little later and see if it's turned. There's only one thing you can do once it turns, right? Cut it out. And so that desire can be righteous, but it can be wicked as too. That word desire is used in 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Different examples that Paul is talking about in the Old Testament where the Israelites desired evil. We shouldn't desire evil. That desire is just flat out wrong. There's no like it started out good and turned bad. We can have a genuine desire for things that are wrong. So, this battle starts within, it rages within, it's fed within, and we just see it when it rubs against somebody else. We, we just have an indication that it was all under the surface until kapow. It shows in those words, those actions, those fights. It started, as, as Peter describes, in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How are you doing in your relationships? 
you know, some people say, you know what, I just really got to avoid some of these relationships. There's just too much drama. And people talk about drama in relationships. I think that's, that's some of the conflict. That's some of the, the uh, fights and, and, and wars that can happen. And they'll get out of one relationship because it has too much drama, and they'll go to this other relationship, and lo and behold, like out of nowhere, drama shows up. And you think to yourself, how in the world? I mean, what are the chances? I'm getting away from that relationship. Let me start this relationship. You know what happens. The drama follows them because the quarrels, the fights, and the conflict have never been examined at the heart level. What's the fight behind the fight? What, what am I wanting so much in this situation, in this relationship, that I'm not getting, that I'm ready to covet, to murder, to cause such a quarrel? So that word covet is used later on in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is used of this zealous is the word. It's where we get zeal. It's where we get this uh, strong desire or passion. Envy or jealousy can be used here. Now, Paul had a divine jealousy in 2 Corinthians 11 for the people that, he, that were in Corinth. And so that was a, I have a, a godly jealousy for you. I want you to come to Christ and stay in Him. In Revelation 13, or Revelation 3.19, where uh, we hear words to this apathetic Laodicean church, he says, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So this word covet can also be a zeal that pushes you in the right direction or a zeal that's going in the wrong direction. Why, why am I belaboring this? Well, I think that you've all been in relationships where you seem to have this, this continual cycle. It's, it doesn't have to be different relationships where you're bringing the drama. It can be that same relationship that you keep going back into these reruns of the same old arguments. Oh, I wish I could just share with you a list of, of all the things that I've heard couples argue over. And you can think of things that you've argued over as a couple and just say, we argue over the stupidest things, right? Can, can we be honest enough and confess? Well, it's because it's not the things that are the problem. It's the desires, the covetousness, the jealousy that is behind those and in, in energizing those. So what should we do? Well, James wants us to consider our problem with prayer as he shows us in the second half of verse 2. He, he kind of seems to transition to this, you do not have. You want something so bad. Okay, you don't have it because you don't ask for it. And the implication is you haven't asked the right person for this, God. The only one that can truly and 100% deliver on His promises is God. And so, why haven't you asked God? Secondly, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Okay, so here's the two problems with the battlefield prayer. One is, you haven't bothered to ask. And so I thought, why, why do we not pray to God in these quarrels? Why do we not pray for really what we want? Well, I think sometimes God in our lives is so far removed from the everyday and the intimate and the, the, the place where those 
fights and quarrels are. God's more present at church and in those religious friendships, but not, not in the everyday things. And so, I wouldn't think to ask God for help with me and my neighbor because that's, that's not a, a religious thing. Well, guess what? God is reigning and ruling over all of His kingdom. Secondly, sometimes we don't ask because we think, um, I got this. I should be able to handle this. Um, this is something I can fix myself and I don't have to bother God with it, right? And that attitude will, will keep us quiet and prevent us from humbly asking God for what we need. Maybe we don't ask because when we actually do say it out loud, our desires can sound just, it's just, that's just plain sinful or ridiculously selfish. When I really just actually put words to what I'm wanting, if I were to say that prayer to God, it sounds so selfish and ridiculous. So I don't pray it. Or I found myself guilty of this at times. Does God know my thoughts? Can He read my mind? He already knows what my heart's desire is and what I want. So why should I have to talk to Him about it? Why should I have to ask Him? Why? Because He asks us to, He calls us to, He commands us to seek Him, to cry out to Him, to call upon His name, to ask. We don't receive because we don't ask, but then there's times when we do ask, but we're asking for it wrongly. That desire is actually not a righteous desire. Sometimes that desire started out a righteous desire, but it became so important to us that it became a demand. It's a need. And so I go to God with that kind of desire that's become a demand, and I say, God, I need this, or that's it. I'm giving up. I can't go on if I don't get this. And we, we kind of lay out an ultimatum to God sometimes. Or we imagine that God is somehow uh, that genie in the lamp, that He owes me some wishes and I give them to Him, and so, okay, how about what I asked for? No, those prayers reveal maybe a, a self-centeredness to my desire. I'm not looking out for the interests of others. I'm only looking out for my own interests. That's why my prayers sound a lot like the list for Santa Claus on what to bring me. Lord, can you fix this? Can you change this? Can you do this to that other person? Can you? And it all becomes about how God can fix other people and make my life right. Because really, a third reason comes to mind is that I think I've thought about this situation long enough. I have the plan, the solution, and it's figured out in my mind. God, here's my desire. Just, just kind of sign over there, and I'll take care of the rest. Just, just give your approval, and then, then I'm good. But God doesn't work like the rubber stamp yes man to us. When we come to Him with our desires, it, it should be as a humble servant. I love the fact that we, we, we kneel before God when we pray. That shows this posture of humility that should reflect a heart of humility that says, I'm not the boss of God. God's the boss. My desires have to come in line with His desires. It's not my way or the highway, God. I'm quitting church if I don't get this. I'm, I'm quitting life. I'm ending it all. If I, and those kind of ultimatums that we bring to God, we ask wrongly. But think of what 
a battlefield prayer would look like if you're in this quarrel and fight and you brought in Je- Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, you're seeking the Lord. And here's the difference. You're calling upon Him and you're seeking Him. And by extension, you're seeking His will. What is His desire for the situation? Sometimes we pick Psalm 37 out and we say, oh, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's some sort of contract that God has written. And all right, I'm going to pray, so you got to come good on your deal. He'll give you the desires of everything I want, all the desires of my heart. Well, read on. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. You may have to wait. And He's more concerned about righteousness in your life than your just free desires of everything that you want. He has a desire. He has a plan. He has a purpose for your life. And He wants you to trust Him for it. And that way, His desires become your desires, and He answers those. What would that look like in some of your relationships where there's conflict? Where you say, Lord, I I think I've been selfish. I've been thinking of my own desires. Lord, what do you desire out of this relationship? How should I respond in these situations? That would be a prayer that God would honor. He takes a turn now, which seems in verse 4 to kind of give a bit of a rebuke. Uh, You're not asking, and then when you do ask, you ask it selfishly. It seems to be indicating you're an adulterous people. Verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship here is not just having a person who's not a Christian who is your friend because you're, you're trying to reach them with the gospel or you're trying to be an example to them or you're trying to, to, to lift them up in some way. Uh, this friendship that James is describing is more the, the allegiance, the solidarity with the world. It's you're assuming the values and the philosophy of the world, and that's where we get into problems because God's ways are not the world's ways, and, and they're in opposition to each other. So if you choose the world's ways and these philosophy and values, then you're choosing to make an enemy of God. This is going to have bad consequences, but friendship that is with the world is something that we need to… If you have a friend that's not a believer and you're trying to reach them, I would encourage you to have a friend who's a Christian who's helping you to navigate that and to really shoot straight with you. Are they pulling you more away from Christ and down than you are having an influence on them? Let's be honest about that and, and be accountable to one another. But the world's values and philosophy is pretty blatant. Fortune, freedom, power, pleasure. If I have money, 
I can provide comfort. I can com provide security. I can do fun things. The world loves that. The world wants freedom, free to be who I want to be, free to believe my truth, free to have it my way. I want to have power. I want to have rights. I want to have influence on other people. I want them to respect me and to think the way I do things is right and good and noble. I want to have that ability and power over people. And I'm going to pursue pleasure. I have the right to be happy. I have the right to be loved. I have the right to make myself a priority. And all these themes from the world, their philosophy, their values, they, they seep in and, and we, we take it in and we, we, in subtle ways, start to live it. But the second part of this in verse 5, when we make the world our friend, God becomes our enemy, here's what He says is happening. Verse 5, do you not suppose it is with no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the Spirit that has he has made to dwell in us. I could spend a half hour trying to work through, this is a difficult verse to translate, let alone to interpret. Because you're dealing with, okay, do you suppose that's no purpose that the Scripture says? And you see quotation marks, you think, oh, James is quoting somewhere in the Old Testament. Guess what? It's not a psalm, it's not Isaiah, it's nowhere in the Old Testament that you'll find this phrase, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But I think what James is saying is that this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. Uh, this isn't like a word-for-word -word quote, but this is actually, this is how God acts. And that is that he yearns jealously over the Spirit. Now, some translators say, well, that's a capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us because we're born again. We've been saved and been given the Holy Spirit. So, He yearns over the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know how to make that make complete sense because why is the Father yearning over the Holy Spirit? Uh, here's my best shot at this. I think what James is trying to say is that the theme from Old Testament to New is that the Lord loves His people, and He's jealous over them. He doesn't like any competition. He says, you'll have no other gods before me. You're not going to make any idols. I am your God. Don't go after other gods. That's idolatry. And the, the attitude towards idolatry in the Old Testament was tear those things down, destroy them, burn them, crush them, get rid of them. Here's a little aside. I fear that in our New Testament, even in our modern evangelical way of looking at this term idolatry, we've tamed it a little bit to be, yeah, I kind of have this idol of control. And we play with it, and we don't fight it, grab hold of it, and with zeal repent of it and say, no more. I'm not, I'm not going to countenance that at all. So, we have to choose sides. We have to choose, am I going to be doing this the way that God would have me or the world? And if, if God yearns for me jealousy and jealously and He wants my exclusive love and attentions, any part of me that gets drawn astray or that is pursuing other things that aren't God, I need to get rid of that. I need to write, fight against that. And that way, we're led to verse 6, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, at this point, 
when we've made the world our friend and God the enemy, and God is earnestly jealous over us and He longs for us, He loves us so much that in His grace, He's going to oppose us. He's going to oppose our pride, our selfishness, our making things ultimate that should never have been ultimate. And this is a military word, God opposes. It means He takes all of His military forces and He puts them in array to destroy whatever is before it. And I don't want to be on the other side of God's forces of destruction because He always wins. And do you know how He wins with us? Is that He destroys our pride and by His grace draws us into humility. I hope we've seen how James uh, brings such amazing clarity to what's actually at the heart of our conflicts. The battlefield of our heart and the, the combatants are not really who we thought they were. We thought that the fights and quarrels were just amongst the people in our lives, but the quarrels that we see in verse 1 are really the proxy war for the battle that's really inside. It's our conflicted hearts. Externally, we see it, but internally, we miss out on our desires, our passions, and we don't identify what those are, so we, we don't win. But then when we see the real combatants, are, it's the redeemed, born-again me in the process of transformation against those passions and desires that are sinful, that I once gave into. And even those passions and desires that may have started off right, but they just went, they went cancerous when I don't get what I want. God doesn't answer those, pra- those prayers for our selfish desires. We should ask God to replace those desires for His desires. He wants us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All those other things will be added to you when we make a priority of His desires and seeking His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, instead of my will be done on earth and in heaven. No, we start to see that God's come to work in our heart and then our relationships to the outside world. But again, it turns out the combatants have an even deeper heart still. The, the pride-driven, selfish desires that have captured my heart can only be relinquished when God's grace comes in and sets me free. The ultimate battle is me with my selfish desires and a gracious God who won't let me hold on to that idolatry, that adultery. He won't let me hold on to that. I can't win. He will completely, fueled by His gracious love, come at me until I'm giving up that pride and that selfishness and I'm humbling myself before Him. That's unstoppable love. That's relentless love. And God will bring you into that battle. He'll use human people to reveal your heart, to show your pride, so He can come in with His grace and rescue you from you. That's God working day by day, little by little, to make you more conformed to the image of Christ. God's grace is what gets to the heart of our conflicts by rescuing us from our selfish desires and granting us Christ-like humility. Let's pray together. 
Oh God, we are helpless without you. We are in need of your transforming grace. Lord, we thank you that in the relationship battles that we face, that you've given us insight into the deeper struggles that are really there. And I pray that we would um, be instruments of your grace in one another's lives to help carefully and gently show one another where that struggle truly lies. And Lord, I pray that you give us the courage, the conviction, the, the strength, and the fortitude to fight where the battle truly is and to destroy our selfish, sinful pride in all of its pursuits. Do this, Lord, as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.